all right. We started uh, last week talking about angels and Satan and demons, and we finished the portion on angels um, and brought us down to demons. I, I will pause and just let you ask any questions if, if there's something about angels we didn't cover or that you didn't understand or something that's hit your radar since we were here last week that you'd like to do that. I'm glad to try to answer anything if I can. If I can't, Paul can. And um, if he can't, Russ probably can. But we'll just go around the room until we get an answer that's satisfactory. <laughs> Anybody? You're just anxious to jump into demons, I know. So we're going to try to clean up uh, the demons and Satan discussion, and then we'll jump into the creation of man, which is really our topic for this week. Um, what's a demon? What is a demon? Fallen angel, angel that rebelled against God, fallen after Satan and his rebellion against God. They sinned against God, who now continually and now continually work evil in the world. Um, we said last week that. Somewhere between Genesis 1, 31, where God pronounced everything good, and Genesis 3, where we see the fall of Adam and Eve, that somewhere in the midst of this, sin entered creation. And we know that Satan, Lucifer, star of the morning, was created and a part of this good creation, as were all the all these angels that followed after. Somewhere, we don't know where, uh, Isaiah 14 kind of gives us uh, an insight, a description of what transpired where Satan, uh, it says, kind of swelled up in his own heart and mind. He, he um, uh, was full of himself. He wanted glory for himself. He wanted to be God in essence. And so how that takes place, we don't know. But he... He does, and, and he managed to lead one-third, the Bible says, is the number. One-third of the angels that were created at that time went with him in their rebellion against God. And so the fall followed after that. <clears throat> this had to happen somewhere in here. We know that Satan had to fall, that Satan um, originated sin in creation somewhere in here and we assume the angels the, the fallen angels fell at that time as well there's not really a lot said about it second peter 2 4 speaks of this rebellion rebellion we read it last week it says for if god did not spare angels when they sinned but but call, cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment and Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And we talked about that a little bit, that it describes them being cast into this place where they are chained. Um, 
and I think we can probably assume, based upon what we know, given our current circumstances, that ain't that, that these demons are active. They're active in our present world, and so they're not confined. They're not separated. They were cast out of God's presence, and they were they had limitations placed upon them. They had restrictions placed upon them. Is probably the best way of thinking about it. Um, someone used the terminology last week, I think, of a leash, like for a dog or something of that nature, that, that God has restrictions upon them, but he's allowed them the opportunity to move about creation and to um, spread sin, to tempt, to you know, engage in spiritual warfare. And uh, that's all part, of, all part of the plan that he's unpacking at this time, but he has allowed that to take place. But they are restrained. Job gives us the, the insight to that. You know, when uh, Job had, was, uh, when Satan appeared to God and, uh, and was making his accusation about Job, and God said, okay, I'm going to let you test Job, but he gave him parameters. He gave him restrictions, limitations, and said, you have to act uh, within this, within this uh, uh, descriptor. <clears throat> Uh, let's see, Satan. He's the, the head demon, if you will. He's the instigator, the leader. Um, a lot of people, you know, there was a, uh, probably before any of y'all's time, but you remember a guy named Flip Wilson used to do a, a character called Geraldine. And her thing was, the devil made me do it all the time. Well, the devil probably is not making you do anything. The devil's probably, you probably haven't encountered the devil head on. You've always probably had to deal with demons, uh, some of his flunkies uh, doing his bidding. Uh, probably if you'd faced up with the devil, you'd probably have known it. Um, it'd have been probably different. But uh, Satan is the head of the demons. The Satan is the personal name of this head of the demons, of what uh, Scripture has described as Lucifer. And the name itself means adversary. Or accuser. Uh, this is what he does. If you had to characterize Satan, uh, these terms would, would do an adequate job. More so maybe than anything else in our in our vocabulary. He's an adversary. He's always against the things of God. He's against anyone who is with God or for God. Uh, he is an accuser. Uh, the scripture calls him the accuser of the brethren. Um, you know, he, he's the ultimate quintessential tattletale. You know, always running to God, always trying to accuse, did you see what Russ did, you know, always trying to uh, diminish the glory of God, to steal the glory of God, to destroy the people of God, which, you know, the people of God whom God loves. Anything he can do to bring harm uh, to God, that's what he seeks to do. So it means if adversary, accuser, we... Um, we see him in a few places in Scripture, like in Matthew 4, in the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Um, Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus describes seeing Satan fall from the, fall from the sky. Um, 
you know, it's, it's a little bit of a mysterious uh, um, thing to say. Let's say Luke 10, 18. Um, this is, you know, Jesus sent out 72 people to go out and he sent them out in pairs to go out and do uh, his work. And this was kind of the first, the first run of ministry. You know, the first deployment of ministry. They went out two by two. And they were empowered by the Spirit of God. They cast out demons. They, they healed people. They did all kinds of extraordinary work. And when they came back, the 72 with joy were saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They were amazed at what they had experienced and seen. Uh, and Jesus said, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he's saying, you know, don't get caught up in all that. Uh, that's, that's not really what you need to be concerned about. You should be concerned about the fact that you've been redeemed, that you've been reconciled to God through by grace and and ultimately that God has won the battle, will win the battle over Satan and all of his protégés, all those that would help him. <clears throat> but there clearly was a, a, a fall, a separation from Satan coming down. One who sought to rise up above and yet he's fallen down. Some other names that scripture uses for Satan to describe him is what? The devil, Diablos, you find the, the Greek is Diablos, and if you look at it, you can recognize, you know, what it's saying. Um, the serpent, and he's described in Genesis 3 as, as a serpent. Uh, a lot of Bible scholars said that, uh, you know, that one of the reasons, you know, we think of a serpent, we think of something that would have been a little bit, you know, frightening, cause you to step back. But in the case with, with Eve, the serpent was probably something glorious to look at. Remember last week we talked about seraphim uh, as one of the orders of angels and that they were, they were serpentine-like uh, in description um, and beautiful. So the serpent at that time was something appealing to the eye, uh, something beautiful to, uh, to observe. Uh, any others? What? Morning Star. Yeah, I mean, some of his uh, original uh, creation, the Lucifer, uh, Day Star type stuff, you, you also find that those names sometimes are used for Christ. So it's, it can be a little confusing. Uh, Beelzebub is one. Uh, you remember the Pharisees accused him of being Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. Anybody ever read that book, by the way? Bill has. Had to read that like in high school English or something. Mm -hmm. uh, ruler of this world, we're told. He's prince of the power of the air, Ephesians tells us. And he's also called the evil one. So several names that we know Satan by, according to Scripture. The activity of Satan and demons. You know, what do they do? Well, we said Satan is the originator of sin. Uh, in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, we see how he works 
And Jesus called him what? That he's a liar. Okay? And the father of lies. Now think about that. That's a mouthful. What does that mean? Father of lies. Well, he, he's the, he conceived them. He, he sired lying. Okay? This, he's the originator. The original liar is Satan. And that's all he does. And in the Garden of Eden, we see that. And when we think about lying, we often think about blatant untruth. You know? Uh, yesterday, I poked my head into one of the uh, weekday classrooms and was talking to a couple of teachers there. One of them's a little boy was there. He's three and a half. And he's over inside and we were talking a little bit and they were kind of talking about some of the things he'd done to help them that morning. And, and we were all just kind of talking and all of a sudden I realized in his hand he had scissors. And he had actually cut a hole in his shirt right here. You know, just... And his mother looked and said, Luke, what are you going to... Look, you've cut your shirt. Did you? Why did you do that? He said, I didn't do that. <laughs> and he, he denied it right up to the end. And I said, I think it's time for me to go because uh, y'all need some quiet time here. <laughs> but where does that come from? Well, that's sin. That's the nature of sin in us. And we think about lies being this diabolical, you know, heavy-duty thing. But Satan in Genesis chapter uh, 3 shows us that, that the lies that he used are... Half, there's half truth. There's enough truth in it to make it believable. You know, when he says, uh, has God said you shall not eat from the trees of this garden? No, God didn't say that. God said we could eat from all the trees. Only this one we can't. That if we eat of this tree, then something bad's going to happen. You know, we're... God didn't say that, you know. He started questioning the word of God and using half truths to lead them down this path. And that, that is the essence of lying, you know, deceiving, deception. Uh, he's the originator of this. This is how he works. Jesus also said that he's a murderer from the beginning. And you think about that, you can think about that metaphorically in that with Adam and Eve that he led them to disobey God, which led them to be facing the judgment of God, which was death, right? So he's a murderer on that hand. He's a murderer in more direct ways uh, all the way through. He led Cain. He encouraged Cain to kill his brother, to take his life immediately. Demons oppose and try to destroy every work of God. Um, I mean, we have a description in, in the Bible in Ephesians 6 that this is, this is not a war. This is not a problem we have with flesh and blood. Our problems are not flesh and blood, but very often that's what we see them as, right? If, if you uh, have someone that's trying to uh, cheat you, you know, at the store out of some money, or someone reached in and took something out of your car or off, out of your backyard off your porch, and you saw them do it, you know, you, you get into this... Uh, thing of seeing this as a flesh and blood conflict, don't we? But we get we get angry toward them, and what Scripture encourages us to see is that this is a spiritual warfare. It's not really a physical conflict. It's spiritual. 
that the enemy's at work here. The enemy is sowing these seeds of deception, these seeds of lying and, and stealing. And I'm not saying that there are consequences that are physical in orientation, but we need to have a different view of them than what we often do, right? That's why we see retaliation on a physical level, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's the way we respond, you know, you hit me, I hit you harder kind of thing, right? Well, that's a physical way. That's a failure to understand what's really going on here is a spiritual conflict of the force of good, which is of God, and that which is of the enemy that's always working to oppose the things of God. We have uh, evidences of this all the time, all the time. I'll, I'll give you a great illustration. I may be picked up Sunday morning. Greg stood up and was sharing some um, announcements at the beginning of the service. Did anybody catch what happened in the middle of that? See, I'm, I'm giving you some inside baseball stuff right now. Now, uh, er, nothing will be safe anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's talking like this, and you could hear him like this, and then I'll sit just like this, and then it's back up like this. And I thought Russ or somebody up there was playing with the soundboard. You know, I started to turn around and look. Greg wasn't turning his head, you know. He told me later he thinks that he had his hand on the antenna on these wireless mics or something, and maybe he was causing it. But the point is that nine times out of ten, you find all kinds of wacky stuff going on in the technology in a worship service that you can't explain. And Russ can tell you, he works up there around it, he can tell you that there aren't explanations for the way things happen all the time. That you think somebody's up there playing with the buttons and things, and when in reality, it's just that that's Satan's favorite place to work from is in the sound system of the technology. Uh, those things go on on a Sunday morning. You know, we, we deal with them all the time. Now, we can sit here and say, you know, we got bad chords. We got this. We got that. Russ, you need to get your act together up there and get a hold of this and nail it. But what's really going on? It's a spiritual conflict. There's a spiritual conflict. We're in the midst of a spiritual conflict. If you're in here having a pep rally for the football team, bet you it doesn't happen. Everything goes off just fine. You know, or if we're doing improv at one of these risque uh, clubs somewhere, they don't have any problem with their, with their microphones, right? That was kind of the idea behind the screw tape letters where yeah. Satan can use even the overwhelming perfume of somebody sitting next to you to distract you during the service. That's right. That's right. There's lots of things that go on. And, and so the point is that when you see those kind of things going on is not to say, um, you know, to try to handle it in the flesh necessarily. Okay? If you have someone sit down beside you and the perfume's overwhelming and you're about to choke, it's not to look at them and say, What'd you do, take a bath in it this morning? You know? You know? You want to go get me a cup of water so that I don't choke to that? You know, you don't handle that. And it's not to get angry at the person. You know, so how should you handle it? Lord, you know, Satan is using this to distract me from what's going on here away from you today. This person had no intention to do this. The enemy is, is orchestrating this stuff. The demons are orchestrating this stuff. They're trying to do this, you know. They're the ones that are using distractions all over the auditorium. They're the ones that are in the 
You know, so we need to be praying. We need to be beseeching God spiritually, not dealing with it up here on the physical level necessarily, right? And my mom always believed in heaven on the physical level. You know what I'm saying? She didn't have much regard for the spiritual warfare in a worship service, you know. When you get home, you know, and she did. I tried to tell her it was spiritual warfare, but she wouldn't believe me. <laughs> so demons are opposing and trying to destroy every work of God. Here's another example of how this happens. You come to church on Sunday, and let's say that your Sunday school teacher does a great job of your lesson, and really something from the Word of God really penetrates your heart. You think, you know, I've not been committed in my walk with God like I should be. I need to be, I need to be investing myself more faithfully. And so, you know, I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to spend time in the Word. I'm going to spend time praying. I'm going to get serious about my walk with God. And you get up the next morning, you know, everything's going just great. You sit down. You got your Word. You got a cup of coffee. You're, you're in it. And what happens next? Phone rings. You know, the dog throws up on the carpet. And, you know, the bus comes early and the kids are, you know, not ready. And... And then all of a sudden you look up and an hour later, you know, it's been a catastrophe and you look at your Bible and you go, there's no way I can sit down and read the Bible now and get anything out of it. How did that happen? You know, was it coincidence? Was it happenstance? I don't believe it is. You know, I believe that the enemy is always working to thwart, to distract, to distort, to get us focused on things that, you know, serve ourselves or serve someone else and not spend time with the Lord. Demons are limited by God, but He doesn't completely suppress them. Uh, Job's account tells us that, teaches us that. We should not think that demons know the future or that they can read our minds. They cannot do that. They do not have that kind of power. Um, we should not be led astray if we encounter members of the occult that demonstrate unusual knowledge or power Demons are likely the source. So you can run into people from time to time. You, if you decided to go into one of these palm readers, you could go in and they could hit on something because of demonic power that they might be connected to. Those things have happened. All right? I'm not saying they're going to be 100% all the time, but uh, the enemy can use these kinds of things to draw people in, to suck them in. You know, they hit on a couple of things and you think, hey, they've got the power and off you go, you know. So it's, it's a real conflict that's going on around us all the time. Demons are active today. I can give you any number of stories of encounters uh, through the years, more so because I think we're more sensitive to it in another culture as opposed to our own culture. Uh, I've been in India, I've been in Africa, I've been in England, I've been in different places where, you know, you have, you have things going on that you can't explain it any other way. Uh, you're on the front line, you're really prepared uh, and ready to be doing ministry. I remember there was a night where I was sent from uh, the hotel out uh, with, a, with a guy that I didn't know, but he was going to be my translator and my guide, and he took me off out, you know, an hour and a half from the hotel to preach in a village uh, we screened the Jesus film, and I preached the, preached the gospel. And I don't know, there were probably two or 300 people around that night just gathered. It's dark, so you can't really see a lot. 
And, uh, and after it's over with, people were coming up and talking, you know, people were handing me stuff, and this guy came up and started talking. Obviously, I can't understand him until the translator says, he says that this is a, this is a evil place here, and he's fearful for he and his family, and wants you to come to his house and, and put a blessing upon his house. Would you do that? And I said, well, sure, I'll come and pray with him. So I went to his little house, and I mean, it's no bigger than this area right here. There's a place to sleep and a place where they cook and that's it and so I walked in and and you know we had a time of prayer and I left and went out and got in the van and they took me back to the hotel the next day I got up and I'm just constantly sweating profusely I just run in a fever and I don't know you know haven't eaten anything you know any of those kind of things and so I go all day that day I every time I would go somewhere and preach when I got through, my clothes would just be drenched in sweat. I'm, I don't know. I don't know how much water I consumed that day, or how much I expired. But it, it was just, uh, it was just crazy. And so when I got back to the hotel, I just kind of stumbled into the bed. Just I was just washed out. And my friend said, "What happened to you today?" And I said, "I don't know." And so I'm telling him, and you know, and I'm saying, "I don't feel good. I think I'm just going to sleep." And so I just went to sleep, and I woke up. A few hours later, and there's nobody around. Everybody's gone, and I don't know where they are. So uh, an hour or so later, a couple of them show up, and, and one of the guys that was from India showed up, and he said, we did you a great disservice last night. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we sent you off out to a place where we knew there was, there was demonic activity, and we didn't prepare. We didn't pray. We didn't, you know, we didn't, we didn't get you ready for this, and we should have, and, and we've been in a prayer meeting. While I was sleeping, they were in a prayer meeting. And, you know, when I woke up, I never had any more problems with this. So he was convinced. I, you know, I said, well, I'm not, I don't know enough to argue with you. I just know what I've experienced. I never had the problem again. So in his estimation, it was demonic. Um, I've, had, I've had people show up in the middle of preaching uh, in Africa, preaching to 5,000 people out in a, just a flat area in the middle of a town and we showed the Jesus film and there were 5,000 people standing around watching this film we preached the gospel and just as I'm getting into the bringing it home you know to make a decision for Christ the crowd just goes and I'm thinking what did I say <laughs> you know I'm looking around and thinking what happened here and my translator looked at me and I said Godfrey what happened he said I do not know but I will find out and so he left. He said, you wait here. And so he came back later and he said, oh, don't worry. He said, there was a fight happened in the bar across the street and everybody just went to watch the fight. And I said, so what do we do? And he said, be patient, they'll come back. And we did. We started praying and waiting and before we knew it, they all came back. We finished the message. People got saved and we left. But, you know, and these things are comical in, in some uh, fashion or form. But there's no, uh, there's no mistaking it. It's demonic. You know, Demo demons are always... I, we stopped in, in a place on a wide, wide spot in the road one day and got out. And there was a group maybe about the size of this group. And we engaged them in some conversation and worked that into sh preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with them. And again, just about the time... It always happens as you're getting ready to draw the net. You know, you're getting ready to draw people give them an opportunity to respond to the gospel. There had been a guy came out about from me to Steve away and was leaning against a tree and looking at me just about like that. 
And as I got to that point, all of a sudden, he started going off at the top of his lungs. This, you know, and he's talking, and, and you know, I, I just had to stop. I had a microphone, and, and <laughs> couldn't, couldn't compete with his voice. And I'm just looking at him. I don't know what to do. So a couple of the guys looked at him and said something to him, but he kept on and kept on, and Godfrey said, you keep preaching. So we did. And in a minute, he kind of turned and, and went off. And he was a fetish priest. And he'd come out. He didn't like what we were saying. He didn't like what we were doing. And I asked Godfrey, I said, what was he saying? And he said, it's best you don't know. So We, we had that in, in Senegal. I, I've had two experiences where I'm convinced it was demonic activity. Yeah. And, and the guy was kind of just disrupting our sharing of the gospel one day. And, we, yeah. and he said some things. I asked Patricia what he said. Right. And, and you know, they come up um, and, and they will, uh, they may have on uh, a long uh, gown or something and they expose themselves to you. There's, there's just any number of things like that that the, the demons are constantly throwing these things up and, and bringing conflict. And it happens around us more than we acknowledge. We're just kind of a, accustomed to it and we don't pay much attention to it. You know, you... Think about um, outbursts of anger or confusion or uh, double-mindedness, you know, in yourself. You know, if you're trying to focus on something and your mind keeps going over here, you're trying to focus on studying your Sunday school lesson or something, you know, and this happens to me all the time when I'm in the study and I'm trying to focus on something and, and there's just all this stuff that my mind keeps going to and it's, it's double-mindedness that, that the enemy, I think, is sponsoring, trying to, trying to interfere uh, needless activity, you know. Um, you ever sit down, you know, you're going to do some serious quiet time of the Lord or you got a Bible study you're doing or something and you sit down and you think, you're ready to go and all of a sudden you go, you know, I never have liked that little book up there on that shelf. I need to do it, rearrange that. And you get up and go do Anything like that ever happened to y'all? And before you know it, you spent two hours rearranging your furniture and then you say, now I can go back and do it. Well, you're out of time now. You gotta... This is the way the enemy works. He works uh, around all of us. Uh, he uses drugs. He uses uh, the occult. He uses fears and anxiety. Not all evil and sin is from Satan, but, but some is, maybe even a lot is. Uh, I remember that you know, the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time discussing demonic activity. It's pretty succinct and to the point for us. Uh, Conrad Merle, who was a friend of mine, that um, he was a, uh, an older fellow when I met him and knew him, and uh, he'd been through a phase in his ministry where he said that he, he began to have to deal with these kind of things. You know, it's like there were people in his church and, and things that came in, and they, they were um, battling with, with demonic activity. And, and he said, you know, you've got to be careful with this because... He said, if you start paying too much attention to it, he said, the enemy will just cue them up and keep you busy mm -hmm. doing that one thing and keep you away from the main thing. Mm -hmm. And he said that happened to him. He said at first he thought this was real ministry and you know, people needed this. They needed to be set free from some of these uh, oppressive uh, works going on in their lives. And he said the next thing he knew, you know, that's all he was doing every day. They were just lining up at the door. And, and, he, and he wasn't doing anything for the kingdom of God necessarily with the gospel, spending all his time uh, doing this. The, the enemy's about a circus, about distraction, and uh, something we have to be aware of. 
Um, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Uh, Grudem even goes further. He says he doesn't like the word possessed. He thinks that's not a good word to use because it, it sends the wrong message. Um, he talks about people having demonic influence in their lives. And, you know, and that sometimes you have so much influence that you really can't do what you want to do or what you would like to do or need to do because the influence is so great. And that's kind of the way that he describes this. But... Uh, I would, I would say that, you know, for thinking about possession as having that kind of influence, that a lost person can be possessed by a devil or have, have demons dwelling in them um, or dominating them, maybe is a better way of saying it. But Christians can't. Now, Christians can be oppressed. They can be impacted by demons, but it's an external pressure that comes to bear on us. They, they don't have access uh, when you think about the Spirit of God living in you, remember, when you're a believer, the Spirit of God dwells in you, then uh, the Spirit of God's not going to coexist uh, with demon, uh, demonic activity. So while they may, you may give them a foothold in an area in your life, you know, you may, uh, <clears throat> maybe sometimes unwittingly, sometimes because we just enjoy a pleasure that something is bringing to us, we kind of make a special place. We turn a sin into an, an idol in our lives, and the enemy uses that as, a, as an entry point uh, to bring oppression uh, to bear. And that oppression can be uh, can manifest itself in lots of ways. You know, fears and anxieties, depression, um, you name it. You know, any number of things. But Jesus gives us authority over demons. Physical sickness, illness, broken relationships, fellowship, anxiety, fear. He has uh, tells us in Ephesians 6 that we have this spiritual armor that we can literally dawn on ourselves in order to uh, resist the impact of these demons. And, uh, and he tells us in uh, James chapter 4 that we don't have to go out and engage in some sort of battle or fight challenge the enemy to a fight necessarily but that we are to submit ourselves to Christ and resist the devil and the scripture says he will flee from us so that's what we're called upon to do uh, sometimes I see some of these fellows on TV that get into they, they really get worked up into these this kind of charismatic and this becomes a part of it and they they, they you know start talking about casting out demons and and going full bore on these things, but the Bible really doesn't instruct us to do that, you know? Paul says to the Corinthians that they had a problem with dissension. He's, he didn't say, go cast out the demon of dissension. He said what? Bring your minds together, agree, and pray in unity, you know? So sometimes doing the straightforward things that the Bible commands us to do is the way that we uh, oppose and resist the evil spirits that the enemy may use against us so it's not hard and it's not some sort of uh, you know let's see we should expect the gospel to triumph over the works of the devil always first uh, john 3 8 says the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil matthew 16 18 jesus said i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it John 4, 4, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 is a great place to camp out. Um, 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that Satan comes as an angel of light. You know, he doesn't show up. You know, we think of, we, we watch enough movies to know, you know, when you start thinking about uh, demonic activity, you know, they're always ugly and heinous and, and scare you to death. Well, that's not the way Scripture portrays Satan's attacks, is that they come as an angel of light. They come through, uh, as with Eve, someone that you weren't fearful of, someone you're not afraid of, someone you're not suspicious of. That's where the danger's at. The enemy comes in and then begins to use half-truth to question the truth of God, the Word of God, um, and lead us in the wrong direction. All right, any questions about that? <clears throat> that was a longer catch-up than we needed to have. Creation of man. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man, uh, created him male and female, he created them. Man, uh, used here to refer to the human race. Now this, this the, given the climate we're in today, the culture we're in, there's a lot of pressure to adopt neutral language in the scripture. And Grudem kind of makes a pretty big deal about this, is that he thinks that um, there may be places where we could say humankind or humanity or people or persons rather than saying that God created man, but he says here is not one of them, that there's a theology at work here, and it's the theology of man's headship and leadership, spiritual leadership, that's at stake here in the early stages of creation. And so for us to go in there and unwind this and kind of make an apology for God that he was, you know, crude and uh, and using this terminology that was going to be offensive in our language was, or in our day is just not uh, a good way to think about it. Uh, the practice of using the same term, he uses the term here, Adam, is the one that is for man, Adam, which is what? Adam. Adam, that's right. So it's, it's by intention, it's by purpose that God does this. Um, so we should not find it objectionable or insensitive. Is it coincidental? Is it accidental? No. Genesis 5.2 specifically describes God's activity of choosing a name that would apply to the human race as a whole. So is it wrong to use neutral terms for humanity? No, it's not. But in this case, clearly there's significance in the terminology. The fact that God did not call humanity woman, but man, suggests he had a reason and a purpose for doing so. So why the creation of man? Why did God need or why did God choose to create man? To bring glory to himself. To bring glory to himself. Okay, good answer. Anybody else want to add anything? Did he need to do it? No, no he didn't. There was nothing, if you say that God needed to do this, then you're saying that there was something lacking in God. And we've already said from the get-go that that's not true, right? 
So he chose to do this because he had a plan and a purpose for it, not because he needed anything from it. He does not need anything from creation or man. He created everything, including man, for his own glory. God was not lonely, nor did he need fellowship with man. He was completely content as triune God. God Father, God Son, God Holy Spirit. From eternity past. Without anything else. He chose to do this for his own purpose. For his own desires. For his own glory. Not out of any sense of need or lack in and of himself. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We are to do all that we do for the glory of God because we've been made for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. If God does not need us, what's the danger in that? We can jump to the conclusion that we have no value. Is that true? No, it's not true. We can think that we don't have value or that we're unimportant, but God's word says we're created to glorify God, so this gives us our significance. This is what makes us important. This is what gives us our value. Now, if that is what gives us our value, then to do the opposite, which is dishonor of God, His will, means what? where we find no value, right? So when you think about where we are as a culture, where we are as a people, as human beings, in our fallen state and the way we naturally think, we live for our own pleasure, do we not? Mm -hmm. More times than not, if you're a lost person, I mean, we Christians have a tough time living for somebody else's pleasure, right? But the lost world certainly is living for its own pleasure. I hear it day after day, people talking about friends they're sharing with, and they say, you know, they're just so self-absorbed. Well, that's people that are doing the opposite of God's plan. They're not, they're, they're not bringing honor to God. They're bringing dishonor to God. Uh, the things that we do as a society, the things that we, you know, when we say that marriage is no longer what God says is marriage, but it's something entirely different, we're doing the opposite. We're bringing dishonor to God. Why do you think there's such a push and a pressure toward those things? It's not flesh and blood that's driving this. It's spirit that's driving this, right? The reason we've got the transgender and, and, and the uh, homosexual agendas going at full-throated bore right now, and the reason they're never satisfied is because it's a spiritual battle. They are in rebellion and uh, conducting a revolution against God. Okay? It's against God. And they're, they're seeking out dishonor. And when we do that, we lose all value. We have no value. Because God's created us for His honor. And that's the only place we have value and significance and importance. You know, isn't it funny? 
We spend so much time in our culture today talking about esteem. You know, we in our schools, we want to make sure that we treat little Billy and Susie in a certain way so we don't hurt their self-esteem. And, and the truth of the matter is, the more we turn them away from God, we're crushing their esteem. We're taking away all their value. We're robbing them of their significance. And the more we cram all this other garbage down their throats, you know, the, the transgender and the homosexuals and, and, and all this way of thinking that's opposed to the things of God, we're crushing the self-esteem. We're not, you know, we're doing just the opposite that we want to claim we're doing. But it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. Um, let's see. What is our purpose? Our purpose to fill, fulfill the reason of God, the reason God created us, that is to glorify Him. Man's inclination due to his fallen nature, as I just said, is to live for his own pleasure. True joy and contentment is in knowing God and delighting in the excellence of his character. What's our mission statement here at Crabout? Now, an elder shouldn't have to tell you that. No worship and share Jesus. That's what we're focused on. That's what we say we're here to do. To know, to worship. You can't worship if you don't know. When you do know, you can't do anything but worship. And when you worship, then you must share. You know, it's, that, that's the gospel. That's why we're here. That's our purpose. No worship and share. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This should be the normal attitude of every true believer. As we glorify God, Scripture says He rejoices in us. He rejoices in us. Isaiah 62, 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. When we realize that God created us to glorify Him, when we start to act in ways that fulfill that purpose, we will experience an intensity of joy in the Lord that is unique. It's the thing we're all looking for and craving for, is that full contentment, that Incredible joy that comes only when we're fulfilling God's purpose for us. When we're worshiping and honoring Him, bringing glory to His name. Man is made in the image of God. Meaning of the image of God. Image. Likeness. Any ideas about what that means to be made in God's image? According to his likeness. The, the, um, it means to be similar, but not identical to the thing that it represents. How is man like God? Well, we, we can't get a full picture of this now because we're fallen, right? But we know that uh, we have intelligence. Most of us. <laughs> we have uh, moral judgment. Most of us. Um, and, and you can go on. You can make a, a lot of things that, um, that God has put within us that 
are similar. They're akin to what we read in Scripture as attributes, characteristics of God. All right? We know God's perfectly intelligent. God is perfectly moral. Uh, we have shadows, glimpses, you know, of these things in us. But having been made in God's image, sin has marred us. So what we see today is, is barely representative of what God created in us to be, what he intended for us to be. So the image has been distorted, okay? If you, um, I don't know if TVs even do this anymore, but you remember the TV when you, you know, the station would go out or get those squiggly lines on the old tube TVs, you know? You know, one minute you're watching and all of a sudden you start to see some shadowy figures there and then sometimes you couldn't see anything at all. But it would drive you crazy. You couldn't see enough to make head or tail out of it. But you, you knew there was something there. And that's kind of the way we are in our sinful condition is that there's some of God's likeness in us. Goodness. When we do good deeds, when we, when we love, when we uh, express joy, when we worship, these are things that are reflections, tiny glimpses of who God is in us. But sin has so marred them that they're distorted, they're, they're almost hard to envision any longer. God's image in man is distorted by man's fall into sin. So can we still be considered like God even after sin has infected the human race in the way that it has? Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Even in a fallen state, there is still a significant presence of God's image in us. One of the reasons that God is so keen on things like murder in Scripture is because he's made life, he's given life. It's not ours to take unless it's under the laws that he's given for us to operate under. Life is precious. We live, in a, we live in a day and a time and a place where life is not. You go into some cultures like an Indian culture uh, where life is not of a premium because they believe in reincarnation, that life easy come, easy go. In fact, you may be doing someone a favor, you know, seeing them pass from this existence because they might have a chance to come back in a better state. So that, that diminishes the value of life, of human life, and therefore is a, is a pushback on the image of God. Abortion in our country, you know, is, a, uh, is along the same lines. I'm going to finish this. Okay, hang with me. It won't take but just a minute. Um, Man as a sinner is not fully like God. Moral purity has been compromised. God's holiness is not reflected in man's fallenness. God's, uh, man's intellect is corrupted. His communication, his relationships. We have relationship problems. Why? Because we're fallen. God didn't create us that way. He created us. You know, Jesus said what? He summarized the law by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's the ideal. That's the purpose. That's the plan. We can't, we're incapable of doing that in and of ourselves. Jesus had to do it for us. You know, as our representative. We can't do it, but that's the ideal. He also said, love each other as you love yourself. Again, the ideal. 
We can't do that. So our relationships are flawed. Our relationships are broken because of sin. Our image, our likeness to God. God's relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is perfect. It's complex. It's unified. It's perfect. He's designed us to be the same, be just as perfect, but we're not. We're flawed because of sin. And all we notice are mostly the imperfections. Uh, I'm hurrying, I'm hurrying. Uh, so what's happened? Christ is progressively recovering God's image in man through redemption. Through redemption. So when we are born again, we are regenerated, we become a new creature in Christ. What's happening? Christ is beginning to work in us to return us to factory condition. All right? So sanctification, after we're in Christ and he's working in us, he's returning us to this image of God. And that's what we will be when we're glorified finally. And so hopefully as we're living our lives here and we're being sanctified, we're growing in Christ, we're being conformed to the image of Christ, we're becoming more like him. The image of God is becoming more clear. As we move toward eternity, we're looking more like him. You can begin to see the reflection clearer. And then one day when we are no longer in this world, we will be as Christ is. The image is fully returned. Does that make sense? That's what's going on now. Complete restoration will occur at Jesus' return. Specific aspects of being made in God's image are morality, spiritual, mental, relational. You know, any aspect of us is impacted by this. Uh, one last thing, the essential nature of man. I want to hit this point because Grudem touches on it. He uses three words, monism, uh, dichotomism, and... Did anybody read it? You know what those mean? What they yes. Okay, tell me, Steve. Uh, basically, it gets down into uh, the, the soul, the spirit, and the body. And they're kind of, you know, how you group them. So three parts, two parts, or, or just the one. Yeah. So trichotomism is advocating that there is a soul, a separate spirit, and a body. There's... Material and immaterial, the immaterial is in two parts, okay? Monism says that there is no difference, that you are completely whole with the material and immaterial together. So there is no distinction between them, okay? Dichotomism says that there are two parts. That there is uh, body or the material, and then there is soul, spirit, but they essentially mean the same thing. All right? This is something that has had a past and a history uh, in evangelicalism. A lot of people have advocated this and taught it, but it's not really supported in Scripture. Okay? We know this one's not. Okay? You can call that one right off. This is the one that's truest to Scripture, okay? And that's what Grudem advocates, that there is the material and the immaterial. There's the body, and then there's the soul spirit. But 
The soul and spirit are interchangeable terms. And essentially, and there's lots of verses we could get into tonight where both are used in the same context. He uses a statement where he talks to the spirit, and the next one he's talking about the soul, but he's talking about the same thing. So uh, they're like that. Now, I would encourage you, because the thing about the dichotomism or the trichotomism is really advocating for a division, okay, a distinctiveness. And I, I think that's a little bit misleading. I would opt for this term, complex unity, is a better description of who we are as, as people. Complex in that we know that there's, there's more than just one part, but yet we're in unity. Uh, complex, soul, spirit, mind, heart, these are interchangeable terms used in Scripture that mean the same things. So complex refers to that unity, that there's a, a unity of being, okay? So it's more together than this, which is talking about more fragmentism, okay? Um, and this also is a better reflection of the Trinity, of which, again, we're in God's image. So you've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit, complex, yet unified make sense mm -hmm. so I think this is a better term uh, there's there's a more technical term that's got something like psychological something in it but I I wouldn't advocate for that very much I, I think the complex unity is a good term uh, to to speak of that because ultimately what you need to know is that this these distinctions this is not who we are it's been said I heard someone say that we are not we are not physical beings with momentary spiritual experiences, but that we are spiritual beings with momentary physical experiences. But that's wrong. That's not true at all. We are spiritual beings and physical beings for eternity. What I just say a few minutes ago, when Jesus returns dead or alive, we're going to be changed into incorruptible creatures in his image. If we are dead, we will be raised, our spirit soul will be reunited with a body that's raised incorruptible like that of Christ. And we'll be together forever. We will have a physical body in heaven just as Jesus does. So we will be both physical and spiritual. We will have these two, two elements, two essences of who we are for all of eternity. That makes sense? Any questions? Appreciate your patience. We did it. Only eight minutes over.